Hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm here today with Heather Vinson and Kirsten Olds. Kirsten Olds is an associate professor of art history at University of Tulsa, teaching courses in art and visual culture from the late 18th century to present. Her favorite assignment was curating the exhibition Dennis Oppenheim, Architecture, Not Architecture, Landscape, Not Landscape, with students in her Art of the 1960s and 70s course. Heather Vinson is a visiting professor of art history at Kalamazoo College, where she teaches courses in 19th and 20th century art, as well as contemporary art and critical theory. Until this year at Kalamazoo College, Heather had never attended or taught at a school on the quarter system, and it's <laughs> finally June, and they're finally done. So, uh, today, these two are going to be discussing diversity and inclusion in the art history curriculum, and without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to these two. When Ellen approached me about this, I immediately thought of Kirsten because we've had so many conversations about teaching art history I mean, for the past 15 years, uh, we've spent ample time on this. <laughs> so um, I think in some ways we, because we were both students, uh, PhD students at University of Michigan, uh, we encountered similar models for teaching. And I think one of the challenges is to break out of those models. And once you become more accustomed to the classroom and more comfortable with your material, um, finding ways to specifically what we want to talk about today is finding ways to integrate more diversity into the art history classroom and inclusion um, that isn't just a kind of token gesture, but that really um, teaches the students to think about these things constantly, right, as part of their normal approach to art history. Um, Kirsten and I talked earlier, we, we were thinking that the first thing we'd talk about is diversity and inclusion in the contemporary or like art since 1945 or whatever the um, specific course is. We, we, we talk about that first and then we might talk about um, smaller surveys like 19th century or 20th century and then come around to the more traditional art history 101, 102 um, survey. So Kirsten, do you want to begin talking about the ways you integrate discussions about race and sexuality into your contemporary art class? Sure. Um, and, and thanks for that introduction, Ellen uh, and Heather. And I also just want to add that this is really an opportunity to kind of begin um, and continue a conversation. Um, and certainly Heather and I um, don't have all the answers. Um, <laughs> we, you know, as, as two white women here, um, we're just seeking to do the best we can um, in our classes and kind of for our colleagues and with our students. Um, and so one of the ways that I begin in most of the classes I teach actually is by having students complete a social identity profile uh, and, and they do this for themselves. I tell them at the outset, I will not ask to see it um, or ask you to talk about it. You're certainly welcome to do so if you want. Uh, but that gives them an opportunity to think about their own social identity um, in terms of uh, race, ethnicity, sexuality, um, gender, um, kind of ability status, um, body type status, religion, 
those things that they feel um, give them visibility in society, um, that may give them unwanted visibility in society, that give them power and privilege, um, and, and that sets up the semester such that they're already thinking about their own located social identities and that the classroom is a place where we talk about and we think about those things um, as they pertain to art, but also as they pertain to the various conversations that are happening. Um, and that also gives us the opportunity to discuss some of the vocabulary around social identity right at the outset of the semester so that we can get kind of comfortable using, uh, you know, different terminology. And I've had students before ask questions that I thought um, maybe um, they would all be familiar with, but like, what is the difference between gender and sexuality? Um, that was a question that actually came up last semester. So um, that's one way that I begin um, my contemporary art class, but actually most of my courses. That's a really great idea. Like I haven't, um, I, and I like the idea that they keep it to themselves um, so that they're not performing or kind of naming things with you in mind as an audience, but they're really, it's just a framework for them to position themselves, yeah. Um, I find it in the contemporary art class, because so much of the work from the 80s, 90s and forward dealt with, well, in the 70s too, you know, if we think about like the civil rights movement and second wave feminism and whatnot. Um, but I also struggle with teaching like, you know, because ours is 1945 forward with teaching abstract expressionism and then minimalism, th those two especially, um, because there's these skills and concepts and methods of looking at, say, Jackson Pollock that are already fairly complex. And then I spend extra time and we talk about, you know, abstract expressionists, others um, thinking about like Ann Gibson's book. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, the, the, when I did that this fall quarter, I found that the students, the compounded information was, it was too much for them to handle. And similarly with minimalism, I find that I want to problematize this idea of the universal body. Um, but once I then get into other critiques about the corporatization or the kind of appropriation by American capitalism of this kind of art and stuff, it, it really does, um, it, it, it almost seems like they can't digest it all. Mm -hmm. So I've tried to find ways where I have to kind of water down some of my more traditional art historical um, information to take on these issues, which they actually think are much more interesting, right? Um, because they're not so much worried if, if we're going to approach Jackson Pollock from a, you know, Rosalind Krauss perspective or a, you know, TJ Clark perspective, right? <laughs> um, uh, so, so that's something that just recently I, especially now that we're on the quarter system and we don't have quite as much time and as semesters. Um, and, and before I think that that kind of, uh, was really challenging for me, but this past time, I, I taught it again in the winter, and I really think the students were more excited about the material because these were things that affect them. Um, and really, it was me feeling like I had to somehow revere a certain kind of way of looking at Pollock or minimalism, you know? 
Um, so that's something that really is is just uh, again part of, as I said earlier, part of working through um, the models of looking and doing art history that I grew up with or, you know, in grad school and whatnot and focusing on like, okay, but what is actually going to spark their interest and engage them and let the students kind of wrestle with those more pertinent topics? Yeah. And I think, I think you touch on a good point here, Heather, in the sense that some of it, it's about giving yourself permission to let things go. Yeah. Or to not feel as if you have to cover every argument or every discourse, right? Everything that's part of uh, the the canon, for lack of a better right. word. Um, and and so, so I like to think of it sometimes as you give the students what they need, not not always what they want, right? And not always what we think we want, um, or sometimes even what what we had. And, and also recognizing that it doesn't have to be one course isn't the end all be all, right. right? That these are conversations that are sustained across a curriculum and kind of across extracurricular activities and different ways of enriching the students and figuring out, okay, so are they going to get that perspective on abstract expressionism or minimalism or, or whatever the topic is um, in some other way or in some other place? And then allowing that to free you up then to have the kind of conversation that maybe they won't get somewhere else or maybe not as easily or the type of conversation that's best had in the classroom. Yeah. Right. So freeing them up to read or discover on their own, maybe the slightly more straightforward perspective um, and have using the classroom space as, as the an opportunity for discussion, debate, problematizing, et cetera. Right. I think another way that I it's funny because when I first started contemporary art, I put a unit in about. Um, the NEA4, and specifically we looked at Karen Finley and Holly Hughes, um, their performance and theater work. Mm -hmm. And I talked about how these artists were using transgression to, to very specific ends. Well, or maybe actually to kind of open-ended ends, but um, in a way that the audience really had to work through um, how things like the AIDS crisis and incest and um, militarism were part of the same discourse, part of the same culture. I'm thinking of Karen Finley's work particularly. Um, and then looking then at other artists who grapple with race, and here I'm thinking of like Chris Ophelia when we do um, the uh, young British artists or something, and thinking about how race is being consumed by the audience again, received by the audience in, in different ways, right? So it's not just about um, the fact that these artists are thinking about race or these artists are thinking about sexuality, but how the form of that affects the meaning mm -hmm. um, and giving them different lenses where sometimes I feel bad because I, I feel like I'm pushing my taste. <laughs> you know, like I like this artist, I don't like that kind of thing. But, but what I'm actually trying to do is is to kind of encourage them to think about the mode of that um, of, of that 
encounter with those issues about um, you know subjectivity and identity and these various things. And in that way, I, I find that that's another place where they can engage and they can kind of say, okay, well, it, it's not just that I have to talk about the fact that these artists are thinking about, um, you know, whatever, but but that I can actually kind of critique or I can think about ways that even with, you know, good intentions that the, that the context of the art world, like it isn't being received in a real uh, critical manner, it's being easily digested by these predominantly white Western audiences, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's another way that, so I did that early on when I started teaching this. And I think that I've kind of come back to that. Um, the idea that a lot of these topics are uncomfortable. Like, you know, like you can use transgression to different ends, right? Like you're mm -hmm. not just trying to upset people. Um, but that this kind of conversation um, can really open you up and and allow you to be uncomfortable in productive ways. Yeah. And that that can sometimes be a model for thinking about um, the kind of conversation in the classroom, too. Not that I'm advocating for, um, like, transgressive behavior, um, <laughs> per se, but for for that that's a conversation that I have with students um, that, you know, they will feel uncomfortable about some of the topics that um, that come up. And that's, that's usually when real learning is taking place, right? Yeah. When they're challenging maybe some of their existing beliefs. Um, and a lot of times those are beliefs around identity, um, but sometimes they're even basic beliefs of, about where meaning resides, right? You had mentioned um, kind of, intentionality before and, uh, you know, thinking about maybe projects and being received in different ways than they were intended. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that certainly students, um, I found, really struggle with. Yeah. Right? Like, well, where does the meaning reside and do we adopt a kind of a constructionist approach? Um, but then what does that mean for um, kind of the intentionist approach? And particularly, how do we negotiate those issues when we're thinking about questions of um, of identity? Right. Uh, and so one one thing that I do with students is we actually stage a debate. So we take different debates in the art world um, and I assign that students draw sides um, so that there's the understanding that they're not necessarily advocating for their own position, mm. um, but they need to kind of construct an argument for a position. Um, and we kind of host the debates in class. And that's a good way for them to think through the issues without necessarily identifying with them emotionally. Oh, Kirsten, I want that assignment. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Because, because I think it sounds like, though, you're assigning them material that they have to um, assimilate and, and you know, make their own. And then the conversation is not scripted, but they already kind of have a um, sense of the, the various parameters of the conversation, right? Because yeah. sometimes... It's yeah. so hard to get students to talk about these things in class if they haven't had time to kind of sit on them and think about it beforehand, you yeah. know? And um, it's embedded in a larger context. One, you can see I'm very kind of skill-based and, and assignment-based. And so um, another 
kind of way in which we're thinking about this and these things are embedded in kind of larger class projects is in thinking about um, analyzing, say, museum exhibitions. Yeah. So in a, in a couple of classes, you know, we spend a lot of time at the museums here in Tulsa. They're great. Uh, and having students go through and kind of analyze one um, kind of one room or one section of the permanent collection and then thinking about, OK, so what what narratives are um, are being told here mm-hmm. and, you know, what voices are being excluded? How how might we rearrange the permanent collection, add things into it, kind of borrow loans um, to think about telling some different stories uh, and and maybe creating a different portrait. So in one case of, you know, um, 20th century American art, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of these as- assignments are embedded in these larger conversations mm-hmm. um, that students are having. Um, and so it's just thinking about kind of hitting them almost from different angles. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think that that approach, like not just relying on the classroom, but l- allowing them to work through some of this on their own and then, you know, they're more prepared. I think they feel more confident. Um, so often it's the on the spot, let's talk about race and gender and class that mm-hmm. everybody kind of clams up. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and part of it's just like, not just fear of talking about it, but fear of saying something that will offend others. Right. You know, some students are, are, you know, just concerned in that way. Um, or, you know, I've had so many students who, um, you know, when we talk about whiteness, and they read the Peggy McIntosh. Just this quarter, a student was like, yes. She's like, I hate being the person that has to like, if I say something, I'm the person saying things that black people think, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so allowing that student to think through um, and, and prepare um, beforehand, I think is, 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 yeah, a great approach. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, Kirsten, um, I know we kind of have talked about this before, but because for me, contemporary art, I feel like there's a narrative or a chronology um, up until like the 90s. And then I kind of pick and choose. Right. I mean, obviously, Mm -hmm. there's things that, you know, social practice, whatever. Um, But how do you kind of decide what artists what global artists you want to highlight and how do you think about that in, in, in the contemporary historical moment about inclusion and diversity? Do, do you see what I'm saying? So that it's not, your, your framework isn't like the civil rights movement moment. Your framework's not like the culture wars. Your framework is now, right? right. Um, well, that's hard to answer. In in one way, I'm freed up because uh, I teach a class that's um, identity politics and art since 1970. Mm. <laughs> so the whole class is about uh, race, gender, sexuality, class, um, disability, right? Um, and and so that and and I structure that where we read um, kind of theoretical texts. And then we look at artists as case studies, some that I bring in. Um, sometimes I try and pair it with what's happening 
um, here in Tulsa or in the region, tying it to, um, we have this great program of, of um, Tulsa Artist Fellowship, where we have artist fellows um, in town for at least a year up to three years. And so I had three of them come and talk to my class um, last semester around kind of these issues or kind of keying it into um, an important exhibition going on, something like that. Mm. Um, in, in terms of the this kind of survey of contemporary art, uh, I guess I work thematically. Yeah, is is how I structure it, um, and kind of weave like you were saying before, even starting with abex or minimalism. Um, I weave it throughout the narrative of the whole semester, mm-hmm. so it's not like all of a sudden, oh, now we get to the week where we're actually going to talk about <laughs> issues of identity, um, and um, and I try and think about kind of whiteness and masculinity and some of the default um, or what have often been treated as the default categories um, and try and make them visible and try to historicize them um, as we move through. I don't know if that really answers your question. But. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's, I like the approach to doing the case studies. Um, and so you're acknowledging that you're obviously pre-selecting and, and omitting, you know. Oh, oh yeah. Um, I also like just recently decided that with and this was in the fall we spent a lot of time looking at um immigration and ref and artists Im- artists dealing with immigration performance artists um from the 90s but also then thinking about like somebody like santiago sierra you know in this context of the big art show like a biennale or whatnot um and how they were dealing with um immigration like these artists and and I and I again like I feel that I feel more empowered as I grow older to just say like okay I'm not going to talk about all that like this is what is in the news right now and I want the students to think about and relate to um, their world critically you know because mm-hmm. they aren't for the most part they aren't listening to NPR or reading the New York Times or you know their whole entire um, news cycle is determined by social media. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so in that way, I, I think I've, again, freed myself to maybe pick and choose certain issues that pertain to, um, like, for, for instance, this um, particular spring quarter, um, we spent a lot of time thinking about authoritarianism and 1980s painting. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so, yeah, like, I, I think that there's something to be said for just not feeling the obligation to, mm-hmm. yeah. And I mean, what, one of the things that I, I do, and I don't know if this is effective or not, but it seems like it's worked, is I'm upfront about that. This is selective. Um, and what I really focus on uh, stressing kind of continuously every semester <laughs> is we're developing tools here. So you're developing the tools to have these conversations, to ask questions, right? To find out how you can learn more about these things and how you can engage productively in conversations, how you can listen 
right? How you can be kind of a, a thoughtful listener mm-hmm. um, and that you will be able to use these tools now in thinking about and talking about all of that art um, and all of the discourses that we didn't have the opportunity to discuss in class. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I usually tell them, you know, we I choose the challenging readings because those are the ones that you really want to talk about and chew over and, and do in a class. Kind of the easier readings, those are the ones that you can do on your own. Right. Um, and and I think, you know, I think as a strategy that seems like that's worked um, yeah. kind of so far. And and like you said, sometimes being willing to put aside what I had planned to talk about that day and, you know, talk about the controversy of the Whitney Biennial. Right. Right. Uh, and because that's something that's topical, students had questions about, you know, we'd had a speaker come in who had brought it up in ways that I found problematic. Um, <laughs> and so it was like, well, let's have, you know, let's have a conversation about this. What are the issues? Um, you know, let's lay them all out and then start wading kind of into it. Do you yeah. want to um, like shift our focus to 19th century or 20, like the more um, period survey type courses? Um, I we both teach 19th and do, do you do a 20th century survey too? Uh, no, I do the first part of the 20th century. So I break it up into two: okay. uh, fauvism to abstract expressionism, and then post 1945. Um, do you? I mean, to me, I think it's. Uh, because the canon is so much more uh, set in stone to some degree, right? Uh, I find it much easier to navigate these questions in contemporary art. And in 19th century, I feel like it is, um, it is, I don't know how, what your um, recent interactions have been, but sometimes I feel like there are people out there who, must be doing some sort of old school art history that does not deal with like, you know, these questions at all. And that that's what like a lot of, you know, the, the, the normative kind of world thinks that we're doing. Um, but, but it's not very difficult to problematize um, the 19th century canon, right. And, and bring up these issues. I think, I think if we're, holding ourselves up to a certain level of scholarly investment that they are part and partial, like you were saying, right? That, that, that this is the thread that goes throughout the whole class. This isn't something that we're going to now turn our attention to, um, you know, colonial art in, in the Caribbean or, you know what I mean? Like, like that kind of, uh, again, tokenism, but... Mm-hmm. I mean, have you, do you, do you still come across that sense that art history is this backward um, discipline? Is that a loaded question? Yeah. I mean, I, (laughs) I think it is a loaded question. I I will say that certainly for 19th century, um, I'm, I struggle, I think the most with it. And some of it is, is because that's not my main area of training. Right. And so I think it's easier for me to um, to find and be exposed to things in 20th century art or I have much wider uh, resources Mm -hmm. than I do for 19th century. And it's easier for me, um, I fully admit, to kind of rely on my training for Mm -hmm. 19th century. Um, And and so that's an area that 
um, that I do. Th I think it, it's um, it's it can be easy to see that it's it's been unchanged for a while. Right. Right. I don't actually think that that's the case, but yes. I do think that there's a lot of work that goes into trying to stay current and yes. trying to update um, syllabi. Well, um, and, and, and textbooks as well, textbooks. right? In the way that if when you're teaching slightly outside of your specialty, that you rely on, you know, uh, textbooks and and to give you the basic outlines of a lecture or you know that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I would agree that that I don't think that um, the textbooks have integrated or that they don't reflect the attention to issues of race and um, sexuality, especially as well in the 19th century. Yeah, I feel like I'm I'm much better with gender and certainly, of course, because of the long history of social history, right? The social right. history part um, in 19th century and class, those two, um, I feel like I'm much better at integrating um, and dealing with, you know, the issues of, of um, Orientalism, colonialism, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. um, but much less so in terms of, of sexuality um, or race. And I don't know that I have, um, I think I'm open to suggestions on that one, um, for how to do that, how to think more about the, the colonies and not just like kind of the representation, right. Mm -hmm. Of different people. Um, but also I guess maybe affording a little bit more agency to other makers, other viewers, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think that, that the, the second half of your statement there, I think that is still um, a big problem that the agency, the making, and yeah, the viewers are still uh, very Western-oriented um, in, you know, my survey. Mm -hmm. So the, I spend a lot of time talking about um, French colonialism and French imperialism um, and I, I have found, um, some success lately with looking at the universal expositions and yeah. the kind of world's fair model. Um, and that allows me to kind of bring in, um, the global, um, quality of spectacle and capitalism and, um, ways in which, I mean, I guess we could call it like hybridity occurs when, um, Artists, artists and performers from other countries are kind of enacting um, an identity for, for instance, the French or Parisian population, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I do, there, there is some really good scholarship around those world expositions that I find is, is helpful. And of course, like I said, uh, the colonialism and imperialism of, of, you know, Germany and France and mm -hmm. whatnot is, is always a site where I think the students um, are just amazed at works of art that they understand as canonical are you know, deeply embedded in these um, colonial power imbalances and whatnot, right? Mm -hmm. um, and as I said to you before, like somebody like Darcy Grigsby, I, it just, you know, her, her scholarship is like essential to, mm -hmm. <laughs> to um, my approach to the survey. Yeah. And again, it, and in part of it's like giving up the fact that I'm not going to get to talk about how weird Ong is, you know, and, 
you know, giving up some of that and, and focusing on, and these focusing on these things that I really do think stimulate the students and get them to relate to their own lives. Yeah. And one of, speaking of that, one of the ways, um, where I maybe push the the onus onto the students is in 19th century, um, they usually write a research paper. And that's where I push them to write on some of these topics. Um, so I've had a good number of papers on, um, you know, various aspects of, you know, the universal um exposition or on kind of a facet of, you know, race and a particular painting, um, for example. And so that is one way to get them thinking about these questions, maybe kind of more successfully than I've actually been able to integrate into, say, the kind of course um, lectures. Yeah. I've also, um, because I teach a class masculinity and modernity or masculinities and modernities um i've found myself more and more being able to bring that into my survey um and not just thinking about gender and sexuality as this you know the feminine commodity form um but thinking about the shifting masculinities um, of the artists mm -hmm. and their relationship to their studio practice, their relationship to exhibition and gallery systems, um, how they, you know, self-fashion themselves as artists. And I've actually had, a, I think the students, um, I thought I'd get pushback because a lot of my students are artists. Um, but, but I think the students actually really enjoy that sense of Although sometimes they want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, like, why should we look at this? These are all imperialistic, you know, heteronormative, bourgeois, um, <laughs> you know. But, um, I, yeah, I, I think it allows them, again, to, to be able to critique and yet engage. And, and they have to grapple with the historical specificity of gender and sexuality in different moments, right? And, and therefore, learning that these discourses are always in flux and always changing. Um, like you can't use the word lesbian and, and gay, right? <laughs> like we have to kind of locate this historically. Um, and I, I think that that's, I, it, it's difficult again to get all of that in your quarter or your semester. But um, I don't know, I, I, I just, the students are really, I think more open to it sometimes than we are. Yeah, um, and I do think that the case study approach, um, it it works for a reason, right? Because mm -hmm. as students delve into the particularities of, you know, that one, that one context or that one thing that they start to take ownership of, mm -hmm. then they can negotiate those complexities Right. Um, and then they start to be able to apply them then as they're thinking about other situations. Oh, so when I wrote that paper on Rosa Bonheur's painting at the museum, um, now I can understand why, you know, when I'm approaching this other topic, I would treat it with the same kind of nuance um, and complexity. Um, this brings us kind of to our third topic, and that is the universal survey. 
and thinking about diversity and um, a global perspective um, in that way. And I guess what I'm thinking is that what you're saying, Kirsten, and like the kind of assignments that you're doing, focusing on these case studies and allowing the students to really uh, produce their own arguments and knowledge, we really are attached to a model that does not serve us well, as far as the survey goes, right? Um, and more and more, we're, we're moving away from that. Um, and so, you know, the question is, is, is the survey like 101, 102, is this even a useful model? <laughs> and, and what other, mo I mean, and I think the answer is no, right? Um, and what other models then are out there? Which a lot of people are thinking about, I know. Yeah, I mean, this is a recurrent conversation. And as I mentioned to you before, uh, certainly the the two-part survey of, you know, either Western art or global art was something that I did, certainly didn't have as an undergraduate. We had a required kind of art appreciation type course for all um, all students in the college. Um, and then we just delved right into period surveys um, in the art history major. Well, even, so, even going to a big public university for undergrad, I saved those classes till my senior year because I didn't <laughs> want to take them. So, it, you know, so again, it, it wasn't essential to, to my understanding of um, uh, art, you know, in a larger, um, I didn't need the chronology to take these other classes. Right. Um, in terms of how to structure the survey, I mean, I think part of the issue is just from a practical perspective, these survey courses also may be embedded in larger, you know, college or university curricula. Mm -hmm. I know certainly for me, they are other, they're part of the general curriculum, you know, our arts management program counts on the, the survey. So it's, it's not as if I'm getting rid of it anytime soon, mm -hmm. um, you know, or we, we would need to have these larger conversations about the curriculum as a whole. Um, but in terms of kind of thinking about the utility of the survey, some of it sometimes is working backwards. And so thinking about, okay, what do, what kinds of populations of students do, do I have? What do I want them to get out of this class? Yeah. Um, and what I'm finding more and more is that rather than specific content knowledge, um, it goes back to ways of thinking, vocabulary, visual analysis, um, being able to compare arguments from secondary sources, being able to kind of acknowledge and understand how we use primary sources. Uh, and, and so those skills they can, students can get without having that larger narrative of, say, the development of, you know, Western art. Yes. Um, and so some of it is, is that I'm attached to kind of teaching it in a certain way, right, based on these themes and narratives um, that I've done for a while. And so some of it is being willing to kind of step back and let that go um, putting, while retaining the time and effort, which is, you know, a limited resource, obviously, for every professor, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, I wanted to ask you, is your survey... Um, Western and like what I know you don't teach the first part of the survey, um, but do you like how much global content is in both of those? Um, for the first part, uh, it's 
it's I don't teach it. It's Western primarily, although um, my colleague is a little bit better about including, um, you know, a wider array maybe of objects and cultures. Um, for me, I teach from the 15th century onward, and it's all European. Um, I don't do any American, um, and. Uh, so it's it's very kind of traditional. I do try to bring in, um, you know, we talk about the Dutch colonies, for example. Um, you know, we talk about kind of Orientalism in the 19th century part of it. But it really is a traditional kind of Western art, European heavy survey. Yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking about because I have more freedom and my colleague here is, is really taking the time based on the fact that she has a fellowship to do so, um, to rethink the period and surveys and, I'm sorry, the larger, you know, 101, mm -hmm. 102 surveys. And I think one model that I am excited about is this idea, I think I've, we've spoken about it before, but this idea that instead of doing a chronology that you would look at a certain city or a certain like geographical area um, at one time, and then, you know, so it, thinking about the second part of the survey, um, you know, you could look at Mexico City. You could look at, you know, you, you could travel the world and do four or five cities in a quarter um, and not feel obligated to teach, again, the chronology that, like, weighs you down. Mm -hmm. um, but my point about that is that I think we really do need more funding and resources because when I step outside of my comfort zone, it's not just that I have to do the extra work, it's that I wanna do it responsibly. Like yeah. I want to feel, I don't speak these languages, I haven't studied these the way I've studied my especially, you know, uh, and, and there's a certain responsibility I feel where I don't wanna just read from a textbook or, you know, read a couple articles. Um, and that, that really does require you to have a course release or have, you know, some funding or something, um, for travel, um, that could, but could allow you to do that. Absolutely. And I do, I think that that's a really important, um, point to note in that, it, so there's responsibility and then there's also respect, right? In terms of, you know, there are other people, certainly not at my university because we, there are only two art historians here, um, but that where that is their area of specialty um, and they, and trying, me trying to kind of dabble in it yeah. in, um, in an effort to be kind of like inclusive um, may end up doing some potential harm there in in giving the impression that, you know, I don't need to have a specialty in this, uh, you know, I can right. condense or, or kind of go and, and almost become a cultural tourist. Right. Exactly. Um, and, and so, um, you know, I think that that's an important conversation to have because obviously it's important to to expose students if they're not exposed to um, these objects and artifacts and histories and discourses, then they don't even necessarily know that there 
interested in them, right? And one of the places where they can learn about them is, you know, in kind of in the university. Um, by the same token, I, I, I certainly as a, as a professor and instructor don't want to do damage there um, in terms of not having the, the level of responsibility, like you said, knowledge of languages, knowledge of kind of traditions, um, that deep embedded kind of knowledge that comes with that being kind of an area of um, specialization and study. And so I don't have the answer for that, um, right. but I do think it's a conversation that we need to keep having. Um, and that's certainly one that sometimes when students ask, are we going to you know, learn about non-Western art, for lack of a better word. Um, and I kind of bring this up. I'm like, well, here's the challenge, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, definitely. And- I mean, I, my introduction to the surveys is always to, we have a conversation, what is a canon? Mm-hmm. Who formed the canon? Um, you know, what are the ideologies that make up this, you know, canon? And, and, and doing almost like a little methods 101 like let's talk about how art history got invented um which which is is a good place to start when you feel restricted like that but i also i'm wondering you know there's so much good literature about cultural tourism if, if that would be a good place to start for um that more global city model you know um yeah. that that might be interesting i also you know, it, it's it really is a. I, I totally agree with you, and and I don't have the answer either. Where I feel this deep obligation, as in an apartment with only two art historians, to expose my students who are taking these study abroad trips to India and to Venezuela and you know to places where I am not including them in my content, mm-hmm. um, but at the same time. Because because when you're in a department this small, they're not they don't have, you know, the luxury of a 20 faculty art history department where they can go and take Chinese painting and poetry of the medieval world. You know, that's just not possible. Um, so I, I agree with you. There really is a, a kind of conundrum there about how to responsibly and respectfully cover material that needs to be covered. And I think I think that um, you hitting on study abroad, and not just study abroad, but making use of technology um, like Skype that we're using right now um, <laughs> to bring other voices into the classroom, and that this is something that we can lobby um, our own kind of universities to provide fairly nominal budgets, mm-hmm. right? To say, okay, can we Skype in? Um, a speaker on, you know, this, this particular topic, um, that could be a little bit of back and forth with the class and the speaker. Um, and that that could be a way of, in some ways, negotiating this, this kind of issue of responsibility and, and respect. Yeah, no, I think that that's a great idea. Um, I, I love the idea of having someone who is fully, uh, capable and knowledgeable, you know, being the communicator of this information. Um, and I, I definitely don't, I don't use that opportunity enough. Yeah. That's something that it, and like you said, for a minimum budget. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That, that, I mean, so going forward, I think we might have to look 
Uh, we can talk about all, you know, in some ways, all the dangers of technology, right? But um, I certainly think we can use it productively too. Yeah. And that is uh, an awesome spot. This was such a rich and wonderful conversation. I want to thank you both. Oh, no, I thank you, Ellen, for giving us the opportunity to talk to each other about it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I look forward to kind of listening to more of these podcasts and learning from our colleagues.